So you want freedom. We look at our world right now, and today we're going to be talking about the great weapon which God has given us. If only we will make use of it. We can clearly see that spiritual warfare, it is in everything that we do, and today we're going to have a big conversation about what I believe is our best tool for revival. So thank you for joining us. This is Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. I'm Pastor J. Dillon Proctor, and there are two others here with me in the studio. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Pastor Mike Proctor. And let's jump into things. Pastor okay. Amanda, would you pray for us? And we're going to have fun today. Sure. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings uh, that you have created time and space and called us to participate in your life. So be with us in this program today that everything that is said may be encouraging for those who are hearing it, uh, may uplift people and empower them to be all that you have called them to be. May we be faithful as you are faithful. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You know, last week we got pretty close to having revival on here. And I hope we can replicate that today. I really do. All right. And so I'm going to open up with a question. You know, when people are kids, you ask this question like, would you rather go your whole life never chewing bubble gum again or never watching TV or something like that? <laughs> Actually, I'm going to open up this program with that sort of question. Okay. Would you rather spend a month in jail or never use the Internet again? Now, for those out there in the audience, I want us to think about this question. Would you rather spend a month in jail or never use the internet again. And how do you think your neighbor would respond to that? How do you think somebody in your house, someone you see at the store, your friends, how do you think other people would respond to that? And keep in mind that social media, communications, streaming services, businesses are all conducted online. And if you're off the internet and the whole world is, there's some serious consequences to that. Whereas you go to jail, you know, I've been in some of the local jails here, not because I'm in jail, but for different purposes. And, you know, they have television. They still get to use their phones and stuff like that. In fact, it's it's not at all the dark dungeon that jails may have been at one point in time. How would we respond to that question? There's a reason why I'm going here. <laughs> I, I I would take the month in jail. Again, depending on the jail, um, like county lockup, I think you'd be okay. Um, maybe if you got to go to prison or some high security thing, that that might be a slightly, I might have to change my answer a little bit, but um, for something compared that has a definite end, a month versus something that's indefinite, I'd rather take the the definite. So I'll, I'll go for jail for a month. Yep, Pastor Mike. You know, I'm older than than you guys, obviously. So it, I remember a world without internet. So it would be a great excuse for me to not go to jail. Um, so I wouldn't have to deal with internet, and uh, I almost. I mean, as much as I enjoy it and use it like a utility, you know, multiple times all day long, it seems like um, I remember a good world without it. I remember that world, too. Vaguely. And Amanda and I, yep. <laughs> we, we actually aren't old enough to remember life without Internet, though we were kids. But I think if we think about what most would answer this, if we think about other people, there would be a lot who would rather spend a month in jail mm -hmm. rather than spend oh, their life without lot, the internet. Yeah. And the reason why I begin with this question is because it opens our minds to realize the seat of power, what we are worried about threatening us, has changed. Mm. You see, a lot of times in history, people have considered tyranny to be something which is carried out by governments. But this question opens our mind to realize we would rather deal with the fine. Some... Mm. 
prison time. Maybe something that is personally or it's attached to your person personally for, you know, life. Okay, I'll take that over being banned and outcast through the the public sphere, which is not governed by a governing body so much as it's governed by a business, something that runs the internet. And the reason why I want us to talk about this is evil is everywhere. It's growing and it's coming for you. And today I want us to talk about our best weapon for evangelism. And all of this weaves together. There's a reason why we opened up with that question. And before we go much further, I want us to go to Mark chapter 3, verse 27. And in this, Jesus says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man, and then, indeed, the house can be plundered. Now, we are seeing a growth of evil in our world. Now, evil's always been with us, but now we're seeing wholehearted evil be very brazen and out in broad daylight. And this affects the gospel. It affects what it means to live a Christian life. We are seeing freedom of speech itself be largely canceled, being largely ended, not just from a government, but from a lot of online companies and things like that. And even people who censor themselves, they don't even have to be tied up so they can be robbed. They'll do it themselves. And this affects the church, whether people want to realize it or not, because in the end, what this means is if you are honest about the gospel, you will ultimately be an outcast or a criminal. And we have to understand that everything we do is spiritual in nature. So while we're not talking about any particular news stories today, this applies to every news story that is out there. What we're talking about today, it applies to every news story. And if you want this to be a news commentary, go pick up your random newspaper or get online, find a news story and... Insert video here. (laughs) Yes. Insert video here. It will match. So I want us to keep in mind that Mark 3.27, with the idea that we largely are tying ourselves up to be plundered. Now, does anybody have any thoughts on all this before I get into what I think is our best weapon, which is the real conversation we're going to have today, what our best weapon is for revival? Any other thoughts on just kind of this opening thesis that evil has infected every institution? And a lot of people are aware of this. We realize that there are threats coming from us, not just from one angle, but really from everywhere. Yeah, you know, I think for, for uh, you know, the, the question itself is it's kind of somewhat um, a tone of saying where do you find your life uh, do you find life in the internet and the truth is I think that in this day and age there are so many um, you know utilities that we use whether it be water electricity the internet those things are important but the true question comes are they life-giving and God is our life-giving. And though, the, though these things make, uh, you know, our, our life comfortable, I do believe that there is this whole, uh, you know, bonding and being, being connected to them that we lose focus and sight of God if we're not careful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, actually let's talk about that because I think something that we should realistically consider is are you prepared for a life without the Internet? Mm-hmm. Before we get into our, our great weapon— for some people, that would be extremely just chaotic, and, and it, would, it would almost seem like their life come to, to an end uh, for yeah. some people because they use it so much. It's such a regular part of their life. And, and not just for fun. I mean, this is used for business, for work, for, work, yeah. for serious stuff. Well, and I think that's the thing. Like, it can be kind of easy to pick on the Internet and be like, oh, what would you do if you couldn't check Facebook every day? 
But for those whose life revol- their livelihood yeah. revolves around it, for to say there's no internet is to say that something has happened to the systems and the structures that have provided life for them, yeah. income and resources. Yeah. And so I was kind of, my husband is doing a lot of investment research and looking into different things. And he was like, well, if we do this and this in five years, we're going to have this, this and that. And I just kind of laughed at him. And I was like, yeah, that's if we're not in a Mad Max uh, apoco- post-apocalyptic you know, hellscape by then. And that's the thing. Like, that's not to say we shouldn't prepare and invest and look into this stuff. Um, I'm glad he's doing that because hopefully we're not in Mad Max uh, <laughs> in five or ten years. And we'll have, you know, this money that has been made. But what are we, what you're asking, Pastor Mike, really is that what are we putting... Our, uh, trust in and yeah, hope in, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and our ultimately our life in. And so, though I do hope uh, that these investments will turn out well, if they don't turn out well, how am I planning, preparing, sustaining my life and the life of those I am responsible for, even if these systems fail me? Sure, sure. Um, and I, I think that's that. That is, it's a good question for us to ask because sometimes we think Jesus is the top of our list, and then we realize maybe Jesus shouldn't even. Uh, be on the list because he is supposed to be in everything that we are doing. Yeah. Um, so it can help. It can be a good tool for us to use to evaluate our life and where our priorities are. Yeah. Pastor and Mike. I like that illustration that Pastor Amanda was using because, you know, you, you think back into, you know, uh, the Great Depression, 1930s, and people were jumping out of, mm. you know, windows and stuff over the, the crash of the stock market. Uh, you know, I, I think. I, I don't think it's too far-fetched to believe that if the, if the internet literally crashed and people didn't have access to it, that there that some people would literally go berserk. Yeah. I, I'm not sure they'd jump out of windows, but I wouldn't find it that, that impossible to believe. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the things which is certainly true is the internet has rewired the psychology of life. Well, mm-hmm. it's, it's tried to. It's not God, so it can't really remake humanity in its image. It can only pervert and twist, and that's what we've seen it do, like a lot of things have. Um, we've become more sensational. We get really worked up about stuff. And even when like blatantly evil stuff happens, we'll look at it and be like, wow, that's really bad. And then like a week later, forget it happened. For, yeah. Forget it happened. It's down not the, the memory hole. Yeah. Well, and I think like you're saying like rewiring it, the technology has created differences in how our brains are, are reacting to things and the chemical, uh, and I am not good with science, but I, I have read some articles on this and they've talked about with children, uh, especially that there is this tension that has to be held, although technology can be a great tool for education, it can also, uh, well, it shortens our time, our intention span. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we can't sit and we can't think and we can't process like we used to because the chemicals in our brain and the, the, the wrinkles in our brain and all those things that happen are have shortened to where if it's not an immediate result, we just come unglued and it, yeah. it's a psychological a physiological response to it and so it has and we have to be aware of that um but i guess that we say all that to say i guess in our context about what where evil is going is again we can kind of focus primarily on the internet and be like oh it's evil and not realize then what is what are all these other things that in our world that are also systems. And so this is yeah. a question to set us up for evaluation, not just picking on one particular aspect. Not to say it's not something that needs to be picked on, because it does. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, we just, what in our world is coming at us? And in yeah. what ways is it coming at us? And how can we fight back? Sure. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, how we can fight back. And you brought up like the Mad Max hellscape. <laughs> I think it's actually a realistic thing to think that Oh, everything no. can fall. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm kind of laughing, but I'm kind of not either. Because let's be honest, like um, it, we're not 
it would not be impossible to conceive of something that could happen that would completely obliterate the internet, that would completely obliterate electricity or, or yeah. some of the structures we have in place. Um, it, it it may not look like the way we think it might look like. It might not be, um, I don't know what happened in Mad Max to cause the world to go <laughs> under, but... Um, it's a little bit unclear, but... Yeah, something. I mean, with the riots and everything of 2020, you don't have to look too far well, uh, in the news to see some things that really look like Mad yeah, Max, and, if you and ask me. To the, yeah. to the point of this... History tells us the people who think their society can't collapse, they see it collapse. It, it's the people who lose that courage of conviction that says, hey, this is worth standing for when everything collapses. I mean, that's historically true. And you even see in 20th century when what we would consider largely a modern world, worlds collapsing, nations collapsing. Like it, It's a realistic possibility. And back to the question of the Internet. You know, I, I remember lying about knowing what YouTube was when I was in high school. Like, people really hadn't figured out Wi-Fi even when I was, like, graduating high school in 2009. And I remember at that time lying about being on YouTube. We would talk about it at school, be like, have you been on YouTube? And I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> like, nobody knew what that was. Yeah. Even back then. But I'm not sure I know now. <laughs> I, I say all of this because we have to fight against it. We have to fight against the way people think. And that's largely what I've been trying to set up here. That question about would you rather go to jail for a month or never be on the Internet, that takes us to the point of what is the hell you want to repulse and what is the heaven you want to admire? What are really the things that you consider a threat? What do you actually think is repulsive? And we are not only shaped by the God we love or the idol we love, but we're also shaped by the hell we repel. And today I want us to talk about something. We have been given a great weapon. And I'm a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene. Everyone here in the studios, a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene. And chances are, if you're listening to this, you might be in the Church of the Nazarene. You might not, but you might be. We have been given a great gift that I think is the best tool for evangelism. And that is the doctrine of sanctification. But before we get into that, because a lot of people are going to say, oh, we're about to get into the technical weeds and all that stuff. Hold up. I want us to set aside everything we know about holiness and sanctification for the rest of this podcast. And I hope to make a compelling case to you. We have to understand, there in Ephesians 4.17, where it talks about the whole armor of God, it gives us the sword of the Spirit. Of course, the Holy Spirit comes there on the, the day of Pentecost with those tongues of fire so that people can live holy lives. Something that happens in the gospel, and I think this is our best weapon for getting people in the church, is the gospel comes to us and says, hey, hey, you over there want to see sinners and tax collectors. What you should be seeing is a man called Matthew. You all over there want to see a woman who had seven husbands. No, you should be seeing this woman that you should go talk to. The Levite, the priest, they're focused with the big picture and going to do their priestly duties. But there's a man laying in a ditch and it was the Samaritan who cared. The gospel has been trying to get us to think differently. And I want us to think about holiness and sanctification. Under this concept, your mind is freed to think clearly as God designed it to think. Mm -hmm. And then you live your life accordingly. You don't have to play the games of the world. You don't have to think about the stuff the world wants you to think about. You don't have to be addicted to, to get in all the trenches that the world wants you to get in. Oh, no, you will get in the trenches and the dark valleys, but you'll be doing it for the gospel, and the scars you get will be for the gospel of Christ Jesus. 
The best tool we have is going to people in our world and, and saying to them, you want to be free from the evil in the world? You're sick of seeing wicked schemes that go unpunished? Well, then start thinking differently. Start living differently. And this is real sanctification, real holiness. Thinking more and more clearly, actually seeing the world the way that God wants us to, not the way that the world wants us to. Being transformed by the renewing of your mind. There, Romans 12, 2. Not seeing problems the same way the world wants us to. Not answering them on those questions. And all throughout the gospel and even the book of Revelation are examples of this. The early church, we find all sorts of stuff. In John chapter 9, there's a blind man. And the disciples, they see him. And John 9, 1 and 2, it says, As they walked along the way, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples ask him, they say, Teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. In John 11, there was a certain man who was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was ill. And so the sisters, they sent a message to Jesus and they said, Lord, this one whom you love, he is ill. Jesus heard it and he said, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it's for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Time and time again throughout the gospel, and we'll even see this again in the book of Acts, the world comes to Jesus and said, hey, see this problem. Look at these tax collectors and sinners you're eating with. And Jesus is like, no, this is a man called Matthew. Jesus sees the world differently. He does not answer the world on their terms. He might say enough to dismiss it. People come and say, why is this man blind? Who sinned? His parents or him? They want Jesus to get in those weeds. And Jesus is like, nah, it's neither of those things. Actually, I'm going to show you something really good here. They're like, hey, Lazarus is dying. This illness leads to death. And Jesus is like, nah, this illness does not lead to death. Which what he's really telling you is death no longer leads to death. Change the way you think. This is our best tool. People are wanting to be liberated from the world. The whole title of this program is So You Want to Be Free. People want to be free. The gospel liberates. It brings liberty to your mind. We look there in Acts chapter 3, and I'm going to throw this back over for some response here in a second. And we find that there's a man who is lame from birth. He can't walk. And the world has got a whole structure set up for this. And I'll just read the text for you. It says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, at three o'clock in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was being carried in. The people would lay him there daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate, so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. And when Peter and John were about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And then he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. You know, the whole world wants to sort out this man's suffering on the question of alms, finances, charity. They think, oh, well, we've got the problem solved. We carry him to the temple, people give him gifts. I mean, this is the spiritual people thinking they've got this sorted out. They're carrying him to the temple. But when the gospel comes along, these two who are sanctified, they see the problem, and they don't see this as a financial problem. The whole world thinks that. The spiritual people think that. They look at this and be like, nah, I don't have any money for you. But in the name of Jesus, be healed. 
The gospel has been trying to show us time and time again, think differently from the world. Mm. That is where liberty comes from. And this is our best weapon. On the day of Pentecost, there in Acts 2, the church is really saying, you know, those tongues of fire that come to rest on everybody, and while the world accuses them of being drunk, they're actually pretty sane. I mean, you see wild stuff going on throughout the New Testament. You see people who have demons chained up in their cemetery, and they're like, it's cool. Don't you dare come cast that out, Jesus. We, we got this under control. <laughs> I mean, you see people worshiping the beast in Revelation 13. You see the dragon doing his diabolical stuff, and St. Michael's like, yeah, I'm just going to come... You know, chop off that head for you. Um, we we find a lot of stuff that seems really wild. But those who are the Christians, and Jesus himself, being the head of the church, are actually remarkably sane in an insane world. And I've said enough in setting this up, but the argument I want to make today is the best weapon we have for revival is actually teaching people that the, the key to freedom is in sanctification, being made holy. Mm-hmm. Thinking differently than the world does. Thinking more and more perfectly. You've been given a new set of eyes, a new set of ears. You don't have to think like the world. You know, don't try to split the baby in two and go and correct Solomon and say, yeah, you could really do that. Don't. All right, so let's have some some other thoughts on this. Who would like to, to go first in response to my assertion? Well, as I look at this Acts text, and uh, especially where Peter, you know, uh, looked intently at the at the man uh, who was placed at the at the gate, beautiful, and uh, the, the Greek language there, uh, we translate that "look at us," and that that's that's an okay translation. But the the uh, preposition is "looking into us." In other words, look inside me. I have a new worldview. I have a Christ view of things. Look at what I have. And being a child of God, there is great joy that the trust and the faith in Christ Jesus is something so different that it just changes the outlook. It changes everything. And so when this, and say, look at us. And so I guess that is a, a decent translation, but it, it it's stronger than just looking at. It's look inside, look deep into what's happening here. And, you know, even though he's looking at them, what they're really saying is look to Jesus for all your trust, your hope, your faith in this world. Um, and, you know, it changes the way everything else is around you. It's a whole different view of things. Obviously, the man, uh, you know, he finds himself whole and complete, no longer lame, running and jumping and all the, the excitement there. But this is the truth. Whether God heals or whether God does not, the true joy, the true life is under, understanding that it is that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and it is not uh, caught up in, in what this world offers or does, but it's caught up in what God can and will do for you. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a, it is, Dylan, exactly what you said. It is a tremendous tool or, or a spiritual weapon to use in yeah. this uh, terrible spiritual warfare that we're going. And that is, you know, that is why we live differently. Yeah, uh, and it's to have those eyes of Jesus. And there is a reason why I have specified this today as a weapon for evangelism. And I don't mean it in a weapon like an atomic bomb, though 
the Holy Spirit coming on Pentecost is kind of like an atomic bomb, figuratively, and there's also a lot of fire going around, but we'll get to that later. Um, maybe, maybe not. It's kind of weird. But what we do have is this is the way that we free people. This is the way we fight back against the evil. Mm-hmm. Make sure you are thinking clearly. And what you do in your life, you know, those who are faithful in a little are faithful in much. Those who are wicked in little are wicked in much. The little details matter. In your life, think freely. Think clearly. It is God who wants you to be transformed by your mind. It is hell that wants others to think for you. And that's something we've got to understand. All throughout the New Testament, when Jesus is here, the, we find the works of God not just coming as, as creeds and philosophies and things which we must beat people with and then censor them if they want to you know, question it. A lot of times we see things like an angel comes to, whether it be Zachariah and Elizabeth or you know, Mary and Joseph, or even the shepherds. They're told, hey, you're going to find the sign. A child's going to be born. You're going to have a baby. Go and find out. Wait and see. Go check it out for yourself. You know, Even when John the Baptist asked Jesus, he says, are you really the Messiah? Jesus' response Weigh the evidence. Go look and see for yourself. Go look. Because God produces good fruit. And he trusts you to go out and walk in it. God wants you to be transformed. Hey, the Holy Spirit came so you can speak. Go make good on that. We oftentimes, there's a reason why I began with that verse out of Mark 3, 27, where you cannot enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Here in our culture, we have tied ourselves up to be plundered by not thinking freely with the gospel. We're trying to say, well, all right, they told me, you know, I can't talk about God in the public sphere, so I'm not going to quote scripture today. I'm going to go over here and try to defeat this problem on the world's terms you know, I know Solomon said, you know, I'll split the baby in two and then the real mother came out. But what if we actually did split that baby in two and give both women something? Would they both be happy? Stop doing that. You're not going to beat the devil at his own game. Stop, stop. What we have to do is realize, don't tie yourself, make the biblical argument. Stand with scripture. Let the gospel live through you. Stand in the fortified armor of God. You know, I think there's something that just says you're free from all these different worldviews and constraints that the world places upon you. But Jesus, when he looks at, uh, you know, the beggar, he doesn't just see a beggar. He sees a a, a person, a person of, of great relationship. The same thing uh, that, that God and, and, you know, chooses Mary doesn't just see a, a, a poor um, you know, peasant girl. No, he sees someone whom he entrusts to to raise the Son of God, Christ Jesus. And for us, you know, we're not only free from all of those um, labels that that this world wants to place upon us, but we're also free to live in the Spirit of Christ Jesus and the love, uh, and to see things differently. And it gives us purpose. And I, you know, it's a, it's, we, we're even free from trying to get caught up into being, uh, you know, great big theologians and all these big long definitions of sanctification. I, I, and I suppose there's a place for that. But the great joy is that freedom found to, from, from the world, but also free for Christ and purpose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pastor Man, do you have any thoughts? Well, I was just trying to think um, as we were talking and, and, um, specifically this Acts 
passage, although, I mean, all the ones you mentioned. Um, and Jesus was quite fantastic at not playing the world's games. Um, we clearly see through the passages that you mentioned in, in his uh, miracles, but also when they would ask him the questions like, you know, should we tax? And Jesus just says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar and God's what is God's, which is also fascinating. I've heard lots of sermons on that passage and people give very weird kind of, they have to do kind of weird um, gymnastics to explain that passage. And I just wonder, did Jesus, was that just a throwaway line that Jesus just kind of said to be like, basically, this is not like, I'm not playing your games. I, I don't know. Maybe we, we, we're looking into it too much, I think sometimes, but anyways, um, but also like the question of the good Samaritan, instead of saying, this is what, um, this is who your neighbor is. He answers the question by saying, this is what it means to be a good neighbor. So he always was so brilliant at that. And then now Peter and John are going to the temple to pray. They're doing the religious thing. They're doing the practices that have been handed to them. And what's interesting, I think, was where Peter starts off with silver and gold, I have not. If we are to be free and live into the life that God has called us, there are things we're going to have to abandon. And that's going to be difficult because it could be very easy for Peter and John to have had silver and gold. And maybe they did have silver and gold in their pocket. I don't know. Probably not. I don't think they lied to this man. But if we're going to live in our culture, we have to look at what the silver and gold is around us. What are the things that we're holding on to that we're so desperately trying to cling to and that we think we can use to free other people? Yeah. And, you know, I was also thinking as we were talking, um, you know, I'm talking to, I'm a minister and my parents are ministers. And so sometimes we share in conversations about different issues in the life of the church and try to like brainstorm together. And my mom's an an educator, um, a a teacher, and and I took my minor and some of my master's was in education. So I've talked to her about problems and Christy, which is uh, Mike's wife and Dylan's mom, she's a teacher. And so we've talked when I was going through my master's, she helped me out a lot and learning and just kind of some practical things. And I realized like some of the things I had heard, questions that were being raised were the same things she had heard when she was getting her degree. And, and my, my parents, I, I've talked to them and I'm like, wait, I remember having this discussion with you as a kid or a teenager and saying, hey, these are problems in the church and we're still having the same discussion 20 years later, what's going on? Um, or sometimes my mom will say something like, oh, back in the 80s, uh, you know, 20 years ago. I'm like, Ma, that was like 40 years ago now. It's like 2020 or 2021. So these discussions have been happening for a long time. Like there's nothing new under the sun, definitely. But even within our specific culture and uh, conditions and situation, we keep having these conversations over and over again about all these issues and we never reach a resolution. And I think the main problem or not the main problem. I guess we can ultimately say the problem is sin, but more specifically is that is we keep trying to fix with silver and gold. Yeah. And it is going to take the church. It's going to take holy people. It is going to take uh, dangerous and entertaining people to steal a line from uh, Dr. Hoskins uh, thing about camp meeting. It's going to take us stepping out on faith because silver trusting in silver and gold is easy because i can touch it i can hold it i can manipulate it i can use it i know silver and gold is going to act like this even in an economy that's going up and down it still provides some form of a structure but trusting in god who is faithful but is never predictable 
is dangerous. Yeah. And that's scary. Yeah. And that's what I think holiness at its heart, if it is trusting God, it is trusting God beyond what cognitive or intellectual assent can take us. And it's not illogical, but it will confound the logic of the world because it moves beyond it. Yeah. And to kind of build off of that a little bit, one of the reasons why I think we've been talking about a lot of stuff is because people have been wanting to beat the devil at its own game. And you're, you're wasting your time doing that. But to make the affirmative case for a totally different way of thinking, the gospel shows us just stop thinking that way. Like do something actually perfect. Go back to that providential design that God had in store for us. It is something which illuminates and frees people. You know, you mentioned there in, in Acts 3, they, they're not really, I don't think they're lying about that. And when you see Jesus there with the coin and, you know, give to Caesar what is, is Caesar's, I don't think Jesus is lying about that either. But I also don't think he's saying do whatever Caesar tells you to do blindly because, yeah. you know, in that day and age, you don't see Jesus going into pagan temples. And there's actually a law about that. You find a lot of people being killed because they won't go in the pagan temples. That was a pretty common thing in the early church. Rome had a law, the Pax Deorum. You had to sacrifice some amount of your time. You had to do something to please the gods of Rome. You never see Jesus go into a pagan temple, nor the early Christians there in the book of Acts. You just don't see it happening. Now, you do. I mean, we have people today. We name our children after a lot of these people who died for refusing to abide by that law. Mm -hmm. And really, overall... We can see that the gospel wants us to think differently. And there's not like a thousand different choices out there. In the end, there are really two modes of thought. There is the way of life and the way of death. Now, the way of life, it's a straight and narrow pathway. The way of death, sure, it's got all of its avenues. It's got its nursing homes, hospitals, schools, clubs, everything. But the way of life, it, it brings us to a place where we can really think clearly. And that's why I want us to connect sanctification with critical thinking. From the beginning, God has wanted us to think with our minds and conform our will to his. God is not a micromanager, never has been. That's not been his goal. He didn't create Adam and Eve to be little puppets that he thought for them. That's why he gave them a will. That's the whole premise of love. I trust you to, to stand, to love me back. When God made Adam and Eve, they were sufficient to stand, though free to fall. And when you look throughout time, God has continually wanted people to willingly love him. It's not a charade of puppet mastery. And in our world, we often find that the people who do want to think for you, the institutions, the things that want to come and censor you and say, well, we want to think for you, those always come from hell. It's always the darkness. And one of the great tricks of the devil is to get you to think that God is the one who's trying to, to control mm -hmm. your mind. When it's actually God who wants to liberate your mind so that you can think freely, so you can achieve excellent things. And in our world, people feel that weight. They feel that weight of people trying to talk down to them, treat them as children, think for them. And we have to realize one of the best evangelistic tools we can use is to simply come to people and say, hey, it's God who wants your mind to be free, that you could conform your will to him. You know, the language we have in the American Constitution preamble is to form a more perfect union. In sanctification, it's not just a, a one-and-done thing where you, you cease to grow. You are made more and more perfect. Your mind is thinking clearer. You're thinking more sane. And that is what the gospel wants us to do. And people are hungry for that, like really, really hungry for that. And the thing is, if people will start with that, 
And no, it's not a top-down policy. You cannot fix the world with top-down policies. Jesus did not come with a top-down policy where it said, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had this understanding of the law, but they got these few quirks wrong. <laughs> Let me sit down and tell you where the Pharisees were right and the Sadducees were wrong, and we're going to fuse all this together in a new hybrid system, and it's going to be great. Doesn't happen. They come along and they bicker about, should you do this on the Sabbath? Should you do that in the Sabbath? And Jesus is like, eh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he moves along. Like he's debating, he's critically thinking. He is thinking freely and teaching others to do the same. And what we have to understand that is that people are hungry for this. We have such a great tool. Like this is the foundations of the Church of the Nazarene, <laughs> a holiness church. And yet we have bound ourselves up so people can plunder us. We've stopped talking about being transformed. Be critical thinkers. You know, maybe we don't have enough conflict actually in the church out in the open. Maybe we, we should be people who are sorting stuff out instead of just like sweeping stuff under the rugs, dancing oh, yeah. like the lady last week saying everything's fine. It's okay to call some stuff evil. That's fine. Let's get out and do it. Let's have critical thinking where we say there's a heaven to be admired, a hell to be repulsed. Pastor Mike. You know, I think as uh, you were saying all that, you know, and talking about calling calling out evil, but really and truly, I think there's a passage in, in Luke's gospel where Jesus talks about really calling out good. And, and it says here in uh, Luke 18, uh, let me just read that for you. It says, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus immediately at, moves to uh, and says to him, why do you call me good? No mm. one but God alone is good. And so one of the things that's happening here is good. You just call everything good. Just You call me teacher. Do you really even know me? But truly, God, Jesus is not saying that he's not good because we know that God the Father, God the Son, Christ Jesus, God the Holy Spirit, they are good. And God alone is good. But he says, you know the commandments. He goes on to, to answer the question a little more. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your mother and your father. And he replied, I have kept all these since my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, there is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when he heard this, he became sad because he was very rich. Now, as we look at that, it's like, where are you putting your trust? Where are you putting your hope? Yeah. And, and, you know, he's saying, you know, come and follow me. Get rid of all those things that you have called good because God is good. Oh, God alone. Yeah. And. You know what? Let's actually talk about that. I don't know if you pulled that scripture out of the, the show notes for today because this is one of my things I had to talk about because you find somebody who starts to think differently. But um, let's, let's dissect this for a moment. Do it. This is the passage of the rich young ruler who we believe to be Barnabas, who appears later in the, the book of Acts. Christian tradition holds that he's Barnabas. And if anybody wants to know why is this guy Barnabas, Email me at jeffdillonproctor at gmail.com or put a comment and we'll do another show talking about that. But for now, we're operating on the premise that this guy is indeed Barnabas. Tradition tells us that. Yes. So here in this, this situation, you do have the question of what is good. Jesus like confronts him on this, which people generally take for a given. Like, I understand what it means for something to be good. It's like, really? You know, I've got a new tablet that I bought. Well, it's a used when I bought it. It's a Samsung Galaxy Tab S6 or something like that. And, you know, it seems pretty nice. It works. It runs really fast. It's got a lot of RAM and stuff in it. I can do a lot of stuff with it. 
But is it actually good? You know, even if it, it works as well as it does now in five years, you know, the apps may not work in it that are newer. It may not run some newer software or something like that. I mean, it can be as efficient as it is today, but then still obsolete five years from now. So it's not actually good. It's useful and it runs well. To actually understand what it means for something to be good is a pretty big concept. And here in this passage, you find a young man who, he's got one thing that holds him back. Jesus gives him a pretty big interview. He says, hey, how are you on the commandments? Do you murder? Do you commit adultery? How do you, you know, steal? Do you slip a pack of gum when you're in Walmart? You know, do you take care of your parents? Do you bear false witness? And the man's like, no, I keep all of these. I'm, I'm pretty good on that front. And Jesus is like, okay, well, how about you give up the one thing that holds you back? And he walks away sad. Mm. And again, be careful not to just make this out about money because the disciples do that. They're like, oh, well, you know, if a rich man can't get into heaven, who can? And you can like smell the atmosphere in the room. They're expecting Jesus to say like, everybody that's poor goes straight to heaven. And Jesus turns around and says, no, for mortals, none of you. <laughs> Only through God. <laughs> so it's, it's not a formula of rich versus poor. It's about do you know God or not. But this young man, the rich young ruler, he is thinking on worldly terms, like clearly. And I don't mean worldly terms as in the world told him to like this. He's, he's just thinking in fallen creation. He come up with this himself. He liked the wealth himself. It was naturally for him to like it. Now he's kind of a little bit wrecked by it. We see him again in Acts chapter 4. But before we get to Acts chapter 4, I want us to talk about him a little bit. Because we talk, we think about the convictions we have. This man got a literal conviction from Jesus and then walks away sad. Somebody <laughs> a, pick A literal come-to-Jesus meeting? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, no, I, I think what's interesting also about this, this particular passage, it, again, people come to Jesus with a certain expectation of how the Messiah was supposed to work. We come to Jesus with a certain expectation on how we want God to work. And we operate under this this paradigm and we're like all right god meet us where we are and then leave us here <laughs> um and and let us just continue but let us continue the best way we think we can and i think what what's also is interesting for for jesus um who is god and, and knows all things but also was, was human and and could just look at this man and know immediately what it was and uh, commentators point out a lot in, in the story and its other iterations in the other Gospels, Jesus doesn't ask any of the first four commandments, which are about trusting God, and he leaves off the one thou shalt not covet. So he leaves the one off, like Pastor Mike was saying, about trust, about commitment. And I, I think w what becomes powerful in this, in this hopeful anticipation of if we have connected, uh, we've connected the story, Christian tradition has connected the story to the, the, the person of Barnabas, is there is some hope, right, here that he left. He didn't, he didn't answer the call in that moment, but even then God did not abandon him. So yeah. even when he was unfaithful, God was still faithful. And there is this anticipation in this text as well, like you said, the disciples immediately then want to figure out, well, who can be saved? Um, who gets to experience salvation, God's mercy and God's blessing. And again, we tie God's blessing sometimes to these things, right? So like as a pastor, we tie God's blessing to people showed up, <laughs> people participated. Um, in life, we, we often tie blessings to, well, I have money and resources and, and things. And that's what in the ancient culture, they're like, ah, oh, God blessed you. 
God bless my army, so that's why we beat out the invaders. God blessed my king, so that's why he's filthy rich. You know, so it was easy to look at this a young ruler and say, ah, God must be with this person because he has these things. And Jesus is like, no, that's not that's not how you interact with God. Um, there's something so much deeper that's happening. And also, furthermore, God cannot be manipulated to work on your end. And God does meet us where we are, but then God takes us to where we need to be. And it it is that, like we said, we have been saying that transforming of our minds, again, not just our intellect, because often I think we over-segment ourselves and we're like, oh, our minds, that's what we learned in school. Like, we know the capital of Arkansas or whatever. Like, no, that's not what God came to transform. God came to transform the way we interact with the world around us. And yes, that does include our intellect, but it's much bigger than just that. Sure. You know, I think as I was uh, reading this, it, you know, being, you know, a follower of Dave Ramsey and, and debt freedom and all of that, and there's this understanding that, you know, of course, you know, debt was often frowned upon until here recently. It's a, you know, 20, 20th century thing where we've kind of accepted debt as something normal and, you know, not necessarily bad, uh, and hopefully that'll change. But nonetheless, I've heard Dave Ramsey say it, you don't own that stuff, it owns you. And so I don't want to change Jesus's words, but the, the, the whole philosophy is still there, whether there's debt or not. And so when Jesus heard this, he said to him, sell all that you own. And and I and for me as I'm as I'm thinking of this this uh, conversation we're talking about of holiness and sanctification, sell all that owns you, man. Mm-hmm. Just sell everything that owns you. Sure. And to make the story uh, come to you know what I call a happy conclusion, if this is Barnabas, as tradition tells us, we know that he had means. He wasn't a person of debt owing a lot, but he had means to finance the gospel as it took place later on, as we see in Acts. A beautiful, uh, you know, he may have been sad and walked away and had to wrestle <laughs> with it, but God never gave up on him, Dylan. Hmm. Yeah, go ahead and read that Acts passage, if you will, out of Acts 4, 36 and 37. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And he sold a field that belonged to him and then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So I can only imagine the weight on Barnabas. Imagine if you had that like literal come to Jesus meeting. You're looking at Jesus and Jesus says, okay, this is how you come to the kingdom of heaven. And it's not like a confusing thing. I mean, he doesn't ask him to solve all the problems of the world or anything like that. He tells him strictly, this is what you got to do. Sell this one thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's many things, but just one area. Yeah. And it comes with a cost, quite literally a big cost. you got to get rid of everything. And when he, he hears this, you know, he goes away sad. Jesus doesn't condemn him. Jesus doesn't even convict him. Jesus doesn't even send him away. He does it to himself. He mm-hmm. literally chooses to walk away from God. But there in Acts chapter 4, he finds himself now being freed from that. And what they're doing here, this sort of, In the modern world, we use the word welfare, and it's largely become something connected with the government. But I can tell you this. um, Yeah, they might throw some money around to keep people happy a little bit in the ancient world, but they ain't caring for people at all like we do in the world. Like Caesar in Rome doesn't care if people are happy or not as long as they don't get in his way. And that's the same for basically every ancient ruler ever, regardless of where they're at. But 
the church here is doing something that even the Jewish people aren't doing. The way that they're taking care of one another, and Barnabas comes in there, and he's not thinking on the worldly terms anymore. He's not thinking like the world at all. And he's not even a slave to what used to be. The liberty, the freedom that comes there in Acts chapter 4 is enormous. Mm. And our people today are very hungry for that freedom. We're sick of being plundered. We're sick of having, you know, someone break into your house and and tie you up. But what I want us to realize is a lot of times we tie ourselves up. Mm -hmm. We go along with stuff that we shouldn't. We're more concerned with having everybody happy at the end of the day than we are actually finding a spine to stand up and say what is good, true, and beautiful and letting the gospel out of its cage. Like, don't tie yourself up to be plundered. Recognize that the gift of sanctification, the gift of holiness, that sword of the Spirit, it is a weapon of liberty, of bringing grace to people that they can be freely, they can think freely, and they're not a slave to the world. Pastor Mike? Well, you know, I think one thing we see here is whether this piece of property or that he sold, whether it be an investment or or, or whatever, he... It, this is the thing. We see Jesus investing in those around him. God investing in this creation. And we're called to invest in others. And it's not just financially investing, but caring about them and seeing people the way Jesus sees them. It's not saying, oh, I just see a group of people here. Here's a bunch of beggars. Here's lepers. But no, he touches and invests in them personally. And that is how I feel like the good news that the church has, the gospel that Jesus cares about you on a personal level, wants to see you find this freedom Wow, what a beautiful story. Absolutely. Any final thoughts, Amanda? You know, I had kind of a crazy thought that I'm trying to collect, connect. Um, Mike had mentioned lepers, and this is where I went. Um, So last Sunday, I think it was, the lectionary text was on uh, Jesus healing uh, Peter's mother-in-law. And there was a point that the commentary made that kind of seemed like a, a an assumption to me like I was like oh yeah yeah but the commentary spent a lot of time talking about it. I'm like why is this significant but I think it is significant when we're talking about entire sanctification is Jesus touches the mother-in-law Peter's mother-in-law and he raises her up and those two actions the touching and the raising are important because in that day and even today right germs spread right we're told to wash our hands and when you touch somebody who's sick what happens you get sick you generally get sick unless your immune system can fight it off and instead of disease coming to jesus the brokenness of the world the pain of the world uh the way the world operates coming to jesus instead jesus touches her and she is healed yeah holiness flowed from jesus to her and holiness is very practical it is it invades every aspect of our life it is not just a religious philosophical thing the second thing is mark says and this is according to mark's gospel or mark's telling of the gospel is that he raises her up and again we could pass right through that word we're like okay he helped her out of the bed cool but that language is specifically used because it is resurrection language now she wasn't dead But she was raised up. That which kept her down, that which kept her oppressed, that which kept her possessed has been broken. And this is this is the tool we're trying we're talking about right here. How do we fight against the world's evil? We don't fight like the world fights. We don't let it invade us. 
we invade the world. Yes. Holiness yes. flows out of us. And then we don't do And again, like some of this war language, I think very rightly, the church is trying to do better at articulating because it is very aggressive, but we've got to be the right kind of aggressive. We're not invading the world so we can beat it down under our submission. It is we are invading the world so we can raise it up. Yes. Resurrection yes. can come. And this is this is the revival I was looking for in this program today. <laughs> we have to to be doing that. Let the lion out of its cage. Find the spine. Find some backbone that says, "Hey, the holiness flows from the gospel." Yeah. The sword of the spirit that we're given there in Ephesians six. It is something which is so so powerful. Pastor Mike, you know, as I look back to this Luke text, where you know the 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 rich uh, the certain ruler came and he, and he's asked to, you know, we we read that and say, oh man, he goes away sad. Jesus is not lifting him up, but truly he is. He's saying, don't let anything on you. Get rid of everything. Come and follow me. He's literally touching this man and raising him up. And so, you know, we have to get away and free from the world's understanding of what is life yep. to see yep. that from the gospel standpoint, this man is being lifted up. Is there going to take some wrestling? Is there going to take some hard things to do? Yes, there is. But being lifted up and raised up, it's happening right here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Good news. <laughs> so we'll go ahead and wrap up there. Okay. Any final thoughts as we get there? We always like to, to close with some sort of final thought, things we see going on in the world, things to be excited about, things to be wary of, good things, bad things, interesting things. I'll let Pastor Amanda begin with this. Okay, random, utterly random, and I am saying this next thought very facetiously, so please do not take me for granted. But I know, like, a lot, like, because things are terrible. A lot of people are saying, like, you know, the world's ending and stuff like that, and then, of course, every... Uh, religious kook has their book out about when they think Jesus is coming back. And I thought about it. If Jesus, what Jesus's actions on the cross is the center of the story, the pinnacle of God's love to the world, if that's the center, what if it's the literal center? And so we think written history was like, or our first recordings or findings of written history was about 3000 BC, if I'm remembering correctly. So if Jesus is the center, wouldn't that mean the world wouldn't end until 3000 AD? Again, I'm joking, but I'm just, I don't know, random thought I had a, a couple of days ago. And I was like, hmm, if I'm going to write, if I'm going to be the crazy kook that writes a book that says when Jesus is coming back, that's my argument. So there it is. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I like it. Let's go with it. Pastor Mike. Well, just to ride on Pastor Amanda's coattails, at my age, I'm telling you, Jesus is coming soon. And it, I don't know how soon that is. But, you know, I, I, I don't look to live to be 100. But but nonetheless, I believe whether we're expecting Jesus to come today, tomorrow, the end of our life, the, the coming to meet Jesus, we must act now with mm. great urgency. And that's what this revival, holiness, is all about, is being in the presence of God uh, because when he's coming, at the end of your life or before, but it could be at the end of your life as you know it as the world tells us right now. So uh, be ready. Be ready to preach, pray, and die. I'll get back on <laughs> Pastor Amanda's coattails. <laughs> yeah. And kind of wrapping things up and coming full circle, my final thought is take history seriously. Mm -hmm. Things can collapse. They Oh, they totally can. Yeah. And, you know, here, the, here recently, and this is where my kind of randomness comes in. So we, we have an inside-outside service. I, I preach outside. I actually like being outside in the cold weather. 
there's something cool about preaching outside in the brisk, you know, below freezing temperatures that kind of reminds you about the certainty of God's order of things. Mm. And when you actually sit outside like that, you're reminded that there actually is a design and a logic to creation around us. And like God is trying to like tell us like, hey, there's a reason, there's a purpose. All these things, they work together. And just going outside and being in the cold can help remind you about that. And, and invigorate your mind. And it's a beautiful, it's like a sanctuary out there. there. Yeah, it you is. You go out and you, mean, you got a beautiful view. It's um, it's really cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I really do appreciate it a lot. Well, you I might do. get snow for your sanctuary this Sunday, so be, be ready. <laughs> you know, I'm for it. Bring it. Bring Good. it, bring it, bring it. Good. All right, so thank you all for joining us. This is Kingdom of the Lagos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. And God love you, and have a blessed day.